Transmitter device activated. Coordinate sets, Earth Prime. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Earth 2 podcast where we journey through the original DC multiverse from the Flash of Two Worlds through to Crisis on Infinite Earths. I'm David Steele. And I'm Peter Watson and today we're going to take a wee sidestep into Earth Prime. Yes, with Strange Adventures issue 140 cover dated May 1962. May 1962. So this is, this is a f- you know, fair few months after Flash 123, mm-hmm. which we, we covered last time. So Strange Adventures was essentially um, one of the many sort of anthology comics that DC published for quite a while. It was, it was a sort of science fiction anthology, but at various points had sort of various sort of recurring sort of features like the Atomic Knights yep. and of course um, Animal Man made his first appearance in Strange Adventures. Absolutely. But the story we're covering today is from its heyday as a sci-fi anthology. There's two stories in Strange Adventures issue 140. But we're going to look at the second one, The Strange Adventure That Really Happens. Written by Gardner Fox with art from Sid Green and edited by Julie Schwartz. So yes, let's plow straight on. So um, you might remember that um, in Flash 123, there's a moment when Barry and Jay are sort of talking and Barry sort of says how he'd read comics with Jay in them and that's yes. how he was aware of Jay. And there was a letter, wasn't there, which asked which Earth we were on. Yes. Uh-huh. So this this issue of Strange Adventures, cover dated um, May 62, so you know, as, as we say, a few months after, Flash one two three. This this actually answers that question. So the story is actually narrated by Gardner Fox. Um, we have a little drawing of him with his bow tie and his glasses. He basically says, "My name is Gardner Fox. I'm a writer for National Periodical Publications, publishers of Strange Adventures. Recently, I wrote a story about an invasion of Earth from outer space. In my story, I figured out a way to defeat the aliens. But then, when my story came to life and the alien invaders appeared, I couldn't remember how I defeated them." And then you've got a fantastic splash page with Julie Schwartz shouting, Fox, you just wrote a story about these alien invaders. And you described how Earth found a way to stop them from conquering us. What was your solution? And Gardner's sitting there pushing his glasses back in his face going, I can't remember. Yeah, and Ju- Julie's pointing out the window at this very, it looks a little bit like a, I want to say like a Klingon. Oh, it does actually bird of prey. Yeah, yeah it's like a bit like quite, very much like a Klingon bird of prey. A yellow Klingon bird of prey with like a flying saucer yeah. uh, front. Which is sort of firing a, a big red laser beam a down at the city. Martian heat ray is. So Gardner narrates the story. Things were normal when I walked into my editor's office on that fateful April morning with a new science fiction story in my briefcase. And Julie is saying, do you want to do Julie and I'll do Gardner? Okay, let's do that. Should we do that? Right, okay. so, right, so Julie then, right. Right, let's go Gardner, uh, let's go. I've got a busy schedule today. Sid Green will be popping in to interrupt us. So let's have your story. Gardner says, okay, Julie, it came out fine. It won't require much editing. Seconds later, however, things got decidedly unnormal as... Julie opens up the uh, script and says, hey, what is this? An April Fool's joke? These pages are all blank. And Gardner's like, what? Stunned, I stared down at a dozen empty manuscript pages, but I distinctly remembered that last night when I proofread them for errors, there had been typewriting on them. I wrote the story. I typed it. Well, what was it about? Surely you can remember it. Garner continues, I, f- I felt ridiculous. For the life of me, I couldn't remember anything about that story. Um, uh... Aha, uh-huh. must have been a real exciting story. All right, listen, you always keep carbon copies of everything. Call Linda, ask her to dig it up. Garner phones home, and we get a nice shot of the back view of his, of his wife, um, saying, these yellow sheets are all blank, Gar. Why did you staple so many empty pages together? Garner saying he was plenty confused by this time, and a little frightened. How could such a fantastic thing happen? And then so we're back in the story panels and Garner's saying, it's as if everything about the story had been erased from my mind. And then you see someone uh, coming by outside. 
Ed Eisenberg. Ed Eisenberg, yes. Julie, the radio in the production room, sounding off about Earth being invaded by an alien spaceship. And Julie says, more April Fool's jokes. This time from Ed Eisenberg, the quiet one. He was actually a colourist. Oh, really? Uh, going back to the Golden Age. Right, say. okay, yeah, cool. So. I wonder if he coloured this story. This, well I mean, this, this, is, um, this is a brown little story. We used to hear about the Marvel bullpen growing up. Yeah. And I believe there was a couple of issues when Stan and Jack popped up in issues of the Fantastic Four and stuff. Yep. So this is this is really nice. You, it's it's a little bit self-indulgent, this story, but you really get the sense that the people who are writing it and all, on all that are enjoying themselves. Absolutely, so um, yeah. it's interesting. So right, so moving on to page three, Gardner's looking out the window after you know, Eisenberg's come in and, and it says here, what I saw made something click inside me. And Gardner says, that spaceship, it's exactly as the way I described it in my lost story. So at that point, Sid Green strolls in. Yep. Uh, as the radio in the production department blasts out a special announcement. So Sid's saying, Julie, is my story ready? Never mind that now. Listen. And the announcement comes over. People of Earth, we come from the planet Alion of the Star Sun Spiker to demand your surrender. We have no wish to destroy you in a devastating attack. So we suggest that instead of our attacking you, you attack us. We will destroy your mightiest weapon, so you will understand you cannot possibly harm us. Gardner's got his hand up to his head and he's very distressed. He's saying, my gosh, that's the exact dialogue I wrote in my story. I remember now that the aliens came from Spica or Spica and the planet I made up called Aelion. But I can't remember what happens next. Sid Green's thinking. So, yeah, Sid Green gets it as a, it's a quite a sort of... um. Hey, what you got, though? Sort of, sort of like lying in side eye, and he's sort of wrinkling his forehead, and he's thinking to himself, why did I ever become a science fiction artist? What's really cool about that panel is you've got the four of them there, and they've all kind of got matching short hair, receding uh, hairlines. Here, yeah. and, um, it's fantastic. It's so kind of like Mad Men. Totally. Uh, like, um, and Ed's got his big stogie in his mouth as yeah. well. <laughs> and um, Ed's got a bow tie. Garner has a bow tie. Julie has a, has a sort of normal sort of mm-hmm. necktie. And Sid is sort of, you know, he's... He's timeless, essentially. He's got a button-up shirt. Yeah, Yeah, sort of pole shirt. So, the story continues. Um, Gardner says, Julie sensed that I was telling the truth. Gardner, remember the Flash story you wrote, Flash of Two Worlds? In it, you said you originally wrote the Jay Garrick Flash stories because you were mentally tuned into his world. And we get a little footnote that says, Editor's note, see the Flash of Two Worlds in the September 1961 issue of The Flash. Or which our is, previous podcast. Yeah, which is why we're covering this issue of Strange Adventures. Mm-hmm. And then Gardner says, Julie, that's right, but what has that got to do with this? Maybe that's what happened here. You must have mentally tuned in somehow in these invaders. Learned what they were up to. But since you were writing a story, you thought you'd had a creative inspiration. The next panel, Gardner is saying, while we've been talking, the armed forces of the United States took the aliens at their word from the Bullmark missile base at McGuire Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right, yeah? yeah? A nuclear warhead hurtled towards the alien spaceship. We then cut back to the, the National Periodical Publications Office and Julian Gardner. This is actually almost, this is back to the, the splash panel, isn't it really? Pretty um, much, yeah. As we stared from the eighth floor window of the Golden Skyscraper building. Look! There goes an atomic missile. So yeah. So then um, and Garner says, just as it did in the story I wrote. Every time I see something new happen, I remember writing it, but I can't remember ahead. So from the starship, a beam stabbed outward, enveloping the missile and obliterating it. That beam, precisely as I described it, it's like reliving a dream. Again, the aliens spoke to us. Again, they used words that I had already written. You saw our demonstration and must understand how helpless you would be before us. Save lives. Surrender. We will give you ten hours to make up your minds. 
And Gardner says, How could the alien invaders have learned everything I wrote, even to the very words in which I demand I demanded Earth surrender in ten hours? How indeed could they have discovered what I wrote? Well later I was to learn that as I was about to start writing that story, the aliens from Arleon were out of sight behind the aliens were basically hiding behind the moon. Two of the aliens conversing together and they sort of look They look like the monoids from yeah, Doctor they, Who. <laughs> if you're familiar with the monoids from the Doctor Who story, the arc, they kinda of look like that, but with two eyes. Yes. And that's obviously going to set the world of Doctor Who fandom on fire because this story was published about oh, yes. four years before that story uh, was um because it was on television. Yes. So the aliens are sort of they're on the spaceship, and one of them saying, "We must be certain the Earth people have a powerful enough weapon with which to give our own weapons their firing power." If they realise we have no fuel to power our weapons, they could defeat us easily. We have to depend on them to shoot at us, so we can shoot back at them. So wait a minute, right? <laughs> They have to be attacked. They have to have the nuclear energy against them so they can channel it back. Turn it back. Right, okay. Interesting. So, right, moving on to page five of the story now, one of the aliens is saying, we can travel through space on stellar energy, but we can't use it to activate our weapons. To do that, we need cobalt. Earth has plenty of this metal, and they will give it to us after they've surrendered. When the Earth people fire at us, their energy from the weapon can be absorbed by our inhaliscope. The inhaliscope will instantly transmit this energy to our weapon and we'll blast the Earth miss. This is It's very complicated. It's quite isn't it? It's not um yeah. as a as a system or as a regime, you know. It's a bit like I suppose it is a bit like blue lantern power rings needing green lantern rings to be yeah. around for them to work. Yeah. Anyway, so the inhaliscope was then lowered onto the earth. Editors note, um Garner says that I found out later the inhaliscope could op- operate only on the surface of a planet, so they couldn't do it remotely. The inhaliscope was then lowered onto the Earth by a gravity beam and surrounded with a radiant electromagnetic field to escape detection. Back to the aliens. To make certain of their knowledge of Earth weapons, the aliens ran them through hang on, ran through them via a tape recorder. Yes, they obviously like uh, the warm sound you get from cassettes. Mm. Uh, look, an Earth writer is putting our entire invasion plan on paper as a story. We can't destroy him since we have no fuel for our weapon but we can't permit him to publish a fictional account of what we intend to do. The aliens turned to another of their intricate machines, and when Gardner went, and when, this is Gardner speaking, obviously, and when I went to sleep after finishing the story, wipe all knowledge of his story from his mind, then eliminate the typewriting on his manuscript pages, as well as the carbon copy. Fortunately, our erase machine works on stellar energy. If- this is epic. They've really thought this through, haven't they? They've planned this out in advance. They've anticipated that someone is going to come up with a fit, you know. They've got all kinds of tech in that place. They've got all sorts of, the machines at a long, a long distance can wipe what, what Gardner has typed out on his typewriter, but they can't fly or they need some power from Earth to then help them. With oh, their weapons. But they do use tape recorders, which is yes. awesome. I love the fact that also they have got a machine that can get rid of the indentations from carbon copies at a distance. Yes. Yeah. That'd be very that'd be very useful, wouldn't it? That's uh, it's somehow fast. cooking this, the book story is really bonkers. I love yeah. it. It's great. Anyway. So we're onwards. moving on. We're moving on. Mm-hmm. And um it cuts back to the to the offices. Garner's saying, um no editor Schwartz was trying desperately to help my memory function. Well, how did you work out the story, Gardner? All you've got to do is tell me how Earth managed to beat the invaders, as always happens in our stories. And Garner's like, I'm trying my best, but all I draw is a blank. And Julie's not happy with this. I'm going to call Washington. This may be preposterous, but on the off chance you did work out a good solution to the problem, the authorities should hear about it. Washington was definitely interested. Within three hours, a trio of Pentagon officials stormed into the editorial office. 
This is General Frederick Heron. Fred, editor Julius Schwartz. We've got a few military types in brown uniforms. Glad yep. to know you, General. I'll fill you in on what's happening while Fox is trying to remember. Yeah, in, in the foreground of this panel, we'll, we will stick it on the socials. You've got Gardner sort of sat, fingers pressed into his brow. It looks like concentrating. Kind of X kind of yeah, yeah, it does it's very much so. Concentrating really hard. So Julie continues in the next panel. I suggest we get Fox back to his den where he usually writes and hope the association of a familiar setting will help jog his memory. The military chap, presumably General Frederick Heron, says, Excellent idea. Meanwhile, I'll remain here and keep in touch with Washington. I'll check in with you by phone. An hour later, this is Gardner the rating again, I was back at Yonkers, back in Yonkers, sorry, pounding away and hoping that as I typed, my recollection of how the story ended would come to me. Now, there's, a, there's an excellent bit of what they call, I suppose, Maison scene mm-hmm. in this panel. You know, as Gardner's typing away, and I'm not sure who that is, it's with him, is it just Julie with his jacket on? But you can see, um, yeah. in almost in the sort of the foreground, background sort of thing, there's a parrot in a cage. I think it's a minor bird. Right, okay, there's, there's well, it's um, Gardner's obviously, Gardner's pet, so, you know, Gardner's typing away. But they're all smoking, Gardner's got a pipe yeah. in his mouth, that's fine, yeah, um, they're but, all, it's, it's the yeah. 60s, everyone smoked. Yeah. Gareth's, Gareth, we, we're smoking right now, actually, in, yeah. um, in, in honour of this, so, so Gardner's struggling, he's sort of saying, I've typed the whole story right up to date, I'm stuck now, I can't remember how it worked out, there's no way. We can't give up, listen, what do you do when you're stuck for a good solution to a problem? Garner starts to pace the room, as he says he always does. Well, I talk my story out loud. Sometimes even talk to Yaki there, my, my minor bird. It jabbers back at me, little words and phrases. Yaki bird? Jabber, jabber? Words and phrases? Best impersonation I can do. Really. It's, it's, it's outstanding. Yeah, right. look, look for. I wonder, if, I wonder if any more minor birds will reappear in future comics that we'll talk about, and you can you can drag that voice I, out again. I, I'll, I'll claim that. That's we'll, fine. we'll look forward to that. So Garner's narration continues. The same idea struck us both at once, like a bombshell. That's it, says Gardner, the bird. Talk out your story, Gardner. Maybe it will repeat a key word or phrase that'll make you remember. Gardner continues, I talked to that bird until my tongue was sore and my mouth was dry. <laughs> but all I got was, aliens from Arleon, a beam to destroy a bombark missile, ten hours to surrender. Ten hours to surrender? Ten hours? Ten hours? And then the telephone rang. I talked out, says Gardner. That stupid bird never says what you want it to say when you want it to say it. Julie's answered the phone. Yes. Yep. And Julie's, who? Oh, Fred Heron. No, General, nothing yet. Then the bird pipes up with... Red Herring, Red Herring. And Gardner says, Red Herring, that's it. Now I remember everything. Those were the key words, but I couldn't remember them. The bird mistook the name Fred Heron from the words I spoke to it, Red Herring. And Julie's still on the phone says, Hold on, General, I think we have something. Gardner continues, The aliens have fooled us with a Red Herring, something to distract us from the real facts. Their weapon is no fuel. It can't shoot unless we shoot at it. The real danger is the inhaliscope hidden in Carson Woods. And then, this is this is absolutely amazing. The very um, next panel. The very next panel, there's a caption which says, Inside 30 minutes, a bazooka squad located and finished off the inhaliscope. <laughs> and it's two guys with bazookas in the woods, blowing up the inhaliscope with a big, massive baroom. Baroom. And it's terrific. And then we got a shot of panel saying shortly, Julie and Gardner are standing outside Gardner's house, and Julie says... There goes the alien spaceship, back where it came from. When we destroyed their inhaliscope, they realised their trick had been exposed. Gardner sighs, phew, that's a relief. Well, I'd better get back and finish that story, now that I remember how it ended. Hold it, my boy. That story is no good to me now. Within hours, every paper on Earth will have printed what happened. Since our strange adventures won't be in the stands for three more months, everybody's uncle will have read it by then. Get busy and write me another story. Fast! You'll have to be satisfied with having saved Earth in real life. 
as you've saved it so often on paper. And Gardner, with his hands in his pockets, is walking back into his house. And that's it. The end. Kind of with a big resigned eight pages. So, Pete and I have decided that this is essentially the first Earth Prime story. Yeah. And Earth Prime will become established eventually. But Earth Prime is essentially the Earth that the, the we the, the comic reader on. Uh, lives on, yeah. yeah, and you and the listener live on, and mm. that the comic creators sort of live. On. So it basically mm. becomes a device to to basically allow the writers and artists to put themselves in the stories. We'll actually end up returning to Earth Prime a few times, and and quite actually eventually quite significantly. Yeah, absolutely. when we get a little bit further on. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, this was I, I genuinely love this story. It's absolutely bonkers. So much plot detail the aliens were just so kind of ridiculous in uh-huh. a proper like almost like 50s b-movie sci-fi way yeah uh, but it was just so fun i also love how after laying down their their ultimatum saying ah we're not going to attack you we're going to show you how powerful we are by letting you attack us first of all the the u.s do fire off a missile at them pretty much straight away and one that they can see from the window of their New York skyscraper. I'm assuming it's New York. They're in because obviously that's where National Comics was based at the time. And you can see the atomic missile fly up to the ship that's hovering above New York. An atomic missile flying there, you know, because it's just going to blow yeah. up and all the fallout yeah. is going to fall yeah. off of New York. They've, they've launched an, uh, a yeah. nuclear bomb at <laughs> a peak population centre without a lot of consideration. It's a, a mental, mental yeah. story. It's almost, like, it. it's almost like... They knew that the aliens would absorb all the energy and that there wasn't really any real risk. So so yeah. strange adventures. Now, we're going to look at the reaction, the, the letters page reaction to that story now. So Pete tells me, is issue 144? 144, yeah. The letters roll right. in all about this this amazing issue. Strange Adventures letters page is highlighted and called Spotlight on Strange Adventures. Not hugely uh, entertaining no. as far as letter columns go, well, but fair a, enough. Well, let's have a, right, let's have a competition. What would you call the strange... What would you call... A letters page for a sci-fi anthology comic that was published 15, nearly 60 years ago. So respond to us in socials with your ideas and we'll see you. We'll maybe read out the best. Absolutely. So the first letter is from Mervyn, Melvin, sorry. Sorry, Melvin, if you're listening. Melvin Herbers. So Melvin talks a little bit about the, the cover story and the and one of the other stories. And so what he says about the story we've just covered, the strange adventure that really happened, to state this story was spectacular, would be a gross understatement. This tale is likened... To no other in comic history, its daring is to be envied. The storyline was well-worn, yet this narrative was refreshingly different. Why my enthusiasm for it? The characters are real people who actually make every wonderful issue of Strange Adventures possible. Artist Sid Green, seeming disgust at become a science, <laughs> becoming a science fiction artist, appealed to my sense of humour. The fact that this story was narrated in the first person added an unusual flavour. The red herring clue at the end was tricky but neat. And from Paul Cedar from, is that Philadelphia? I think it's Philadelphia. Philadelphia, PA. Yeah, there it must go. be. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, he says, Dear Editor, for just pure downright entertainment, I don't believe I've read anything quite like The Strange Adventure that really happened. It was a delightful farce. Whoever is behind this story, I suspect it's those pixies, Gardner Fox and Julie Schwartz. I don't think they've ever been referred to as pixies before, but interesting. Mm-hmm. Surely deserves all the congratulations that can be bestowed on him. Or, if the case be, them. I was glad to see what some of the people behind the great DC Comics look like. I'd like to see a follow-up on this story sometime. And once again, have the staff play an integral part in it. Well, obviously, yeah, we will. The reply from Julie Schwartz is, Sometimes a gag story loses its punch when repeated. 
But should another menace pop up to challenge this dauntless duo again, <laughs> you may be sure they'll be well armed for the typewriter to key it into submission. There we are. Lots of fun wordplay so, there from Jilly. I mean, at that point, obviously, it's the story that we've just covered is just seen as a gag. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's seen as a one off kind yeah, of but almost experiment. But, but it does hinge on the idea that, as we've already said about the, the tie into Barry Allen being able to tune into yeah. Jay Garrick and all that sort of stuff. So it's. I think a lot of the genesis of this story came from the fact that Flash of Two Worlds was successful. Yeah. And they thought, right, well, that's quite fun. And that's obviously been in their minds when they've. Yeah. When you know they've yeah. been doing this, and they thought, yeah, we can get a bit more out of that. We've got one more, one more letter, uh, one more letter from Rockwood, Rockwood from Memphis, Tennessee. He talks about one of the other stories, but then he's going to say the strange adventure that really happened was a spectacular story. The artist, especially, did some fabulous cartooning. I do have a reservation about the plot outside of the aforementioned one that Arthur saved at the last critical moment. I think it's unlikely that the Pentagon would believe a call from a comic book editor. It would have been more realistic if editor Schwartz and writer Fox had been forced to dash like mad out to Carson Woods and finish, finished off the inhaley scope by themselves. That's a good point, actually. To be yeah. Honest. Well, then again, you can't have that amazing cut to the panel of the two guys. Yes, I know, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, and you know, the editor's response to that is, you may have a point there about the about that call to the Pentagon for if the situation were reversed and the Pentagon called us, we wouldn't believe it either. As for Schwartz and Fox, dashingly mad to smash the inhaley scope in their own, rather than leave that chore to the army, that would have been an unrealistic touch to an otherwise realistic story. <laughs> Terrific. Right, so now that we've done Strange Adventures 140, we're now going to talk a little bit about one of three stories that appeared in Strange Adventures 113, which was published on December 29th, 1959. That's about two years and three months or so before Strange Adventures 140. But there is a good reason we're talking about this issue, because this is very much a pilot for the issue we just discussed. Yep. And the story we're going to talk about is Menace of the Shrinking Bomb. Menace of the Shrinking Bombs. It's, sadly, it's not the cover feature in this issue of Strange Adventures. The cover feature has a sort of big fish alien wrapping a tentacle round the Empire State Building and some hopefuls in a rowing boat are shooting at it with a rifle. But our story is the middle of the three stories from that issue. Once again, it's written by Gardner Fox and... Art by Sid Green and by edited Green. by Julie Schwartz. Here we go. So... The science fiction editor asks his writer to dream up a new Menace to Earth story. That's exactly what, <laughs> now listen to this, Greg Farmer did and then discovered to his astonishment that his dream was coming true. So we have a couple of lads looking with a big telescope and they're looking up the sky and is that our Greg in the blue suit? I think it must be, yeah. yeah. Greg saying the moon, the planets, the stars are becoming smaller as if they were rushing away from Earth. And the other chap says, there's another possibility. Maybe Earth and everything on it is rushing away from those heavenly objects because we are rapidly shrinking in size. Slow dissolve. In the plush offices of Union Publishing, editor Julian Sloan and writer Gregory Farmer hold a plot conference. Now, in case you haven't noticed, yes. these two protagonists have the same initials as Gardner Fox and Julie Schwartz. Had you noticed that, Pete? Uh, I might have noticed that, yeah. yes. It's not hugely subtle. So, and we have to say, Julian Sloan looks pretty much identical to Julie Schwartz as he was portrayed in the story in 140. And Gregory Farmer is very similar as well. He's, he looks a little bit... A little bit younger. Yeah, a little bit younger. He's you know, <laughs> a bit more hair. He looks a bit trimmer. So Must have been a hard two years. In must between. have been. Are you being Julie or are you being... I'll, Gardner, I'll be... Or, sorry, Greg or Julian. I'm Julian Sloan. Right. Okay, okay. Greg, let's go. Bring in any good science fiction ideas today. <laughs> Bring in any good science fiction ideas today. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, God, if they ever made a movie... 
you know, if if they were to do it, like, suddenly bring in Garner and, and Julian all that into the, mm-hmm. you know, they'd have to get Bernie Sanders to play him, wouldn't they? That's one for our anyway, right? That so, would work, yeah. Right. Greg responds, don't I always? How about this? Space explorer hero lands on a far distant planet. Only thing on it is a vast city, completely deserted. Its original inhabitants were great scientists, but there's no sign of them anywhere. And we get a couple of panels of a chap in a green jumpsuit wandering about a very sort of 50s sci-fi looking deserted city and then looking at his reflection. And he notices that he's kind of mutating, his head's kind of swollen up. And the caption... Suddenly, to the Earthman's amazement, he begins to change physically. His rate of evolution increases at the rate of a thousand years a minute. And we have this scientist lad saying, what's behind this fantastic change? How will it end? And it cuts back to the office. And there, Julian basically says, I know how it ends. The hero evolves full circle and turns into Superman and reverts to a primitive microscopic creature. So, yeah, that explains Which, the disappearance of the original inhabitants. So that means that, what, did they have some sort of accelerator? Anyway, Julie poo-poo's it, basically. He's, or not Julie, Julian you know, poo-poo's it. He's guessed it. And, and, and he says he just bought a story with a similar plot. He just bought a similar plot. So, um, and Gregory says, well, you know, how about this one? When the first Earth men land on Mars, they find an answering machine there that tells them anything they want to do. No, it's not a telephone answering machine. It's no. a machine that gives answers. It gives answers. Um, so they bring it back to Earth. We just mentioned quickly that the astronauts look a little bit like um like space cabbie, they're sort of yellow with sort of red sort space of Ranger. Space, space, space Ranger. Yeah, space Ranger. Space Ranger. Sorry. Space Ranger. Yeah. Um, they bring the answer machine back to Earth and then they quiz it. It seems to give it all the wrong answers, and it says giving it, Martian answers. Yeah, to Earth questions. Martian, yeah. So the statues on Easter Island represent Martian visitors to Earth. The Atlantic Ocean is a Martian reservoir. Gregory is sort of saying that you know, they discover the the Martians are actually responsible for, but then Julian cuts them off. And he says, you're way off base. What I want is human interest stories with realistic problems, a different kind of menace. So Gregory says, right, okay, guess I'd better go back to the office and work something out. I'll phone you tomorrow. And Julian reiterates that he wants human interest. So, so, yes. so slow dissolve. Next day, Gregory gives Julia a call and says, I've dreamt up a good switch on an Earth menace, an invasion from a subatomic world that is not an invasion. And Julian is like... Thanks. It sounds tricky so far. Tell me more. So, and then we get to Gregory narrating and... Well, Give this, give this one a little bit more coverage. So it's a couple of sort of like red, sort of chunky looking aliens. Greg is saying these subatomic people are scientifically advanced over us. They work out a plan to capture the Earth. And the first alien is saying, instead of us journeying to the subatomic universe to invade Earth, we will shrink it down to our size with a shrinking bomb. And the second one says the physical effect of being reduced to atomic size will make the Earthlings helpless to resist our attack. Back to Gregory explaining. He says, um, they fire the shrink bomb. See. It travels through the atomic universe into ours, growing all the time. The bomb lands on Earth and the planet begins to shrink. So we have a couple of sorts, and one of them saying, am I imagining it, or is the moon shrinking in size? And his girlfriend is saying, it's a question of relativity. Either the moon is changing size, or we and the planet Earth are shrinking. So he cuts back. Julian's in his office. Gregory's on the phone. We hear Gregory over the phone saying, the beauty of the menace is, even though Earth's inhabitants may guess what's happening, they won't know what's causing it or how to stop it. And Julie loves this story. He says, you come up with a nifty one, Greg. Develop it in detail. Come in first thing tomorrow and we'll talk it over. So, the next day, the caption tells us that Greg Farmer fails to appear. And Julian is saying, what happened to Farmer? He knows I'm on a tight schedule. I have artists to see, other writers to plot with. A very well turned out chap with a moustache says, Julian, are you, Julian, are you busy? Did you read this? He's holding a newspaper. Astronomers report that the moon is decreasing in size. And so, Julian is like, Julian. So, yeah. And Moustache Man is, um, I don't think the moon's decreasing in size. It only seems so because the Earth is getting smaller. How uh, would they measure that? How would they figure that out? I don't know. And also, I'm wondering if this guy is another cameo by another DC staffer. Yeah, it could be. 
It doesn't look like Sid Green that we saw in the, no, in the previous. I wonder who it could be. I wonder. Could be, you know. Julian's not convinced by Moustache Man. He says, you must have overheard my conversation with Greg Farmer yesterday. Yep. But that night, Julian is on his way home, and he thinks to himself, sure enough, the moon is smaller. Say, I wonder if... No, I'm imagining it. He's watching telly at home, and his wife brings him his dinner on a plate. And the television broadcast is all about the fact that the Earth is definitely growing smaller. Yep, and this chap on the telly is saying that the first day, the Earth's diameter shrank one inch, the second day, two inches. The shrinkage is doubling every day, and if the geometric shrinkage continues, the Earth's diameter will be one inch after 30 days. A few days later, it will shrink to the size of an atom. That reminds me of when I was in secondary school and Mr. Wiggins, my biology teacher, told us a, a sort of a little scam and a scheme to try and get more pocket money out of our parents. We sort of said, say to your dad or whoever gives you pocket money, you want a penny a week on the doubling system. So the first week you got a penny, and the second mm-hmm. week you got two pennies, then you got four pennies, then eight pence, and mm-hmm. the week after that you got 16 pence, then 32 pence, then 64, then £1.28, £2.56, you know. Five pound and twelve, ten pound twenty four, twenty quid, and you know. So, yeah. end, you know, then the end of the month, your your father was owing you plenty much money. Indeed. So Julian continues to watch telly, and the man on the news is saying, "However, the Earth's mass remains the same, and evidently we are unaffected by the change." This is incredible. The very story Greg Farmer dreamed up coming to life. So you will see by this point how this is quite similar to the story from Strange Adventures 140 that the correspondent shall we say had sort of come up with in his own head but was actually happening in real life and Julian Sloan dials his good friend General Martin Barrow in the Pentagon Greg always thought up clever solutions for his menace to earth stories I hope he has a solution for this one I don't know where he is but General Barrow may be able to find him so Julian gets put through to the Pentagon and says I phoned Farmer's house but his landlady said he left this morning and hasn't come back we don't have much time. You can locate him faster than I can. As soon as he hangs up, General Barrow orders an intensive search and we get a nice sort of shot of sort of um, telegraph wires, jinx, you may have found and scratchy letter saying, find Greg Farmer. So it's obviously been sent out in Morse code or that's, something. That's lovely. It's a sort of grey tone, sort of writing. thingy panel, yeah. but you know, it's, it's not really rendered in full colour like the rest of it. So... Next caption, the hours pass by without a trace of Greg Farmer. Meanwhile, the moon, the sun, the stars appear smaller and smaller as the earth becomes smaller and smaller. Then in the morning of the third day after the search has begun, we have a hospital bed and there's a a nurse showing a military man in what looks like Julian into a room and there's a chap stretched out in bed. And the nurse says, this must be Greg Farmer. He was in an automobile accident. Since he had no identification on him, we didn't know whom to notify. Another day passes before Greg comes round and Julie's there and Julian says, Greg, the earth is shrinking just as you dreamed it. The world's in terrible danger. Did you have any solution worked out for your menace story? Greg, let me think. And while a science fiction writer recalls his dream, one of the the military types is saying, Farmer's vivid dream coming true is no coincidence. In some mysterious way, he was mentally attuned to a wavelength of the subatomic creatures he speaks of. So that's quite interesting because that's kind of like the idea of in Flash 123 of the various writers being able to tune into the events of what's taking place on the other Earths and then turn them into stories. It's, it's very similar, isn't it? Absolutely. So yeah, so um, Greg from his bed says, the planetary shrinkage is caused by a shrink bomb. Surprise, surprise. Yes, my solution was to find it, then blast it off our planet, out of the solar system itself. But because of my accident, I've lost mental connection with the subatomic people. I don't know where the bomb is. And the general says, 
It'd be an impossible task finding it. The bomb could be anywhere on or in the earth. And then there's another chap who I don't think is Julian. Is, uh, he, yeah, because he's at the back at the first yeah. panel of that page. There must be some way to find it, and within a week, or we'll have reached the point of no return, and the earth will never resume its former size. Greg sort of stirs, and he's like, wait, I just remembered. The shrink bomb gives off an unearthly radiation. Your scientific instruments ought to detect it, since the radiation will increase as you approach the bomb, you can pinpoint its location. And we cut to a squadron of bombers? Fighter pilots? I don't just know. Planes, planes, really. Planes, <laughs> planes, military planes. And the caption tells us that all over the earth, the most intensive search in all history begins. And it- I love this caption, no sign of any radiation under the ocean. I'm taking this as the entire ocean. Yeah. These uh, five so jets. I hope, I hope that someone's looked behind jets. the fridge. I hope that someone's checked my mum's garden hut sort of thing. Where's the last place they had the radiation? Exactly. Just work it back that way. We move on to to page eight. And finally, after two days, the shrink bomb is located embedded in one of the snow-covered peaks of the Andes Mountains. And we see another aeroplane with with a little radio message saying, Radio headquarters, the good news. And then we get another caption. And this is the narrative being the story being wound up in quick style here. Just like the other story. (laughs) Yeah, just like the other story. So we suddenly have engineers work night and day to unearth the doom bomb. And then someone's saying, a jet bomber is standing by to pick it up and fly it to the missile base at Cape Canaveral. And within hours, the bomb is encased in a special hull and blasted off into outer space. And luckily, there's someone standing off camera to tell us that the its launching velocity of 54,000 feet per second will carry it into a parabolic orbit of our solar system, never to return. Now that's very Julie Schwartz, yeah. just adding in the science facts. That's yeah. very like the flash facts that yep. we'll probably talk about. And then we see a military person, which may be General Barrow, I'm not sure, saying the subatomic creatures will believe their bomb had no effect on Earth and abandon their attempt to take over our planet. And then final caption says, later when Earth returns to its normal size. Julie says, every news publication in the world carried your story, Greg, but we printed your exclusive reports. And Greg is delighted and he says, and I got a boost in rates. That's what I call getting a raise the hard way. The end. Which is the opposite of the other one. Yeah. The other story where, you know, he was told, if, everyone's yeah. heard the story everyone's now. Seen it, they know what's happened. So there's um, no point in you telling us. I just, I'm not convinced that the subatomic aliens would have given up. Well. It's crying out for a sequel, who, isn't it? Another, it? another one that's crying out Maybe for a sequel. Is. I think we should have a, a Black Label miniseries yeah. uh, um, focusing on the subatomic aliens. Um, Princess Tara turns up to sort, to sort it out. Indeed, so, yes. So that's 113, as you see, very similar to 140. So it's we're not going to say it, it was completely reheated, but obviously. And again, the characters are clearly based on, on Gardner and, and Julie. Um, as you so could tell by us mixing up yeah. our names as we yeah. were. So it's, it's kind of, kind of you know, maybe the, the first almost new sort of... Prototype. Uh, prototype sort of... Earth Prime story. Prime story. Yeah. So, yeah, so now, um, as we may mention, we're now going to talk about a few more issues of Strange Adventures that have some... A few sort of bits and bobs that are a bit like some of the stuff we're going to talk about later. None of these stories are actually Earth 2 or multiverse related, but just by virtue of what they are, they kind of tie into some of the... The, the themes. Yeah, the themes the and themes. sort of concepts, some of the characters and the stories that we'll be talking about. So... Um, Strange Adventures 162, which I picked up a while ago because the cover absolutely fascinated me. It's, it's the, the headline is The Mystery of the Twelve O'Clock Man. So the cover's split into three panels and there's, you've got a gentleman in a sort of lab coat and some green trousers and a red tie and he's saying, It's almost noon and I'm about to vanish again. Three, two, one, big flash with zero. And he says, I'm back again an hour later. But what happened to me during that time, will I ever know? And that, that just sort of caught my eye because it, it reminded, put me in mind of, um, you know, of our man. If we're being honest, one of the lesser, the slightly lesser lights of DC's golden age. Pete's going to tell you how the story plays out, basically. Your main cover character there, he's a, a rocket scientist, as all your good heroes were back in the early 60s. 
and yet he discovers that uh, for one hour a week he vanishes and then reappears an hour later and he has no memory of what happens to him in that time. Uh, so he decides to find out what happens uh, by attaching a remote camera to his tie and that will record uh, as soon as he is due to vanish. And he discovers that he's not actually human, he's synthetic and being created by a race of aliens to spy on humanity so that they can take over the world, as you do. But he's come to love humanity so much that he decides that the next time he goes back, he's going to destroy them. So he basically does that. He goes back and he wrecks their machinery, just killing himself in the process and defeating the aliens' evil, evil plans. Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit sad. Yeah, really. Well, it is but yeah, so, um, but it's a great classic sci-fi you know, yeah. twist story. It's yeah. good fun. So that's um that's one six two, and he is kind of like an hour man because he's disappearing for an hour and he saves the world. Yeah, so, it's, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I often thought you know when I when I picked this story, <clears throat> this story up a couple of years ago, I thought it would have been nice if you know wonder if Tom Perry had ever or Pyre, however you pronounce it, had read it and maybe incorporated it into his hour man series. So yeah, so that was that's yeah one six two with the the mystery of the twelve o'clock man. We're going to have a very quick look at Strange Adventures issue one hundred and seventy, which was cover dated November nineteen sixty four. So yeah, Strange Adventures one seventy. The story, the cover features the creature from Strange Adventures. Basically, a guy gets chased around by a big scary monster, and then he sees himself and the scary monster on the cover of an issue of Strange Adventures on the newsstand, and has a look through the comic and sees that the comic is basically repeating everything that's happened to him. And the story plays out, and the monster gets explained and justified, and it all gets tied off in a nice little neat knot after lots of running about. Mm -hmm. And the guy goes back and has a look at the comic and sees that the story in the comic ties up the way it did in real life, or is his real life. And then it finishes with him sort of going, huh, how could that happen? And then the reader is invited to, um, basically, I'll read the, I'll read the final caption from the story. Um, Here's your chance to win the original artwork for this story. A chapter will be awarded to each of the two readers who supplies the best explanation for the weird coincidence in this adventure address mail to the editor of strange adventures lexington avenue new york blah 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 i wanted to mention this because you know you could almost suggest that whoever wrote the story in the comic might have mm. somehow been tuning in and picking up the information in the same way that that gardner had been doing also reminded me of the essentially that the rather meta stories from grant morrison's animal man run you know where, where Absolutely. the character of animal man Finds out he's a fictional character and meets his own meets Grant Morrison, who's his maker, yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah, who's writing the stories, and, and it, you know, it put me in mind of that, and it made me sort of wonder if this idea of a character become seeing himself as a character in a comic book is maybe did Grant dig a little further back when he was researching Animal Man as well as reading the Strange Adventures? Did he read with mm -hmm. Animal Man? Did he read a little further back? But it's also what um, issue is that again? Sorry, issue one hundred and seventy. So that's about okay. ten issues. Ten issues, one eighty was the yeah. first animal man. Yeah, so, so, but also as I say, it, you know, it could have been maybe construed as another example of someone tuning into a parallel earth or whatever. So, um, it yeah, could, could also be another Earth Prime story. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we will probably never come back to Strange Adventures one hundred and seventy, but it's yeah. it's worth it's worth mentioning. So now, um, Pete's going to talk us through Strange Adventures issue one hundred and eighty-one, which has the the cover sort of slogan: "The fantastic story of the man of two worlds, not the Flash of two worlds, the, the of man of worlds. two worlds." So it's an homage to the title of the Flash of two worlds, as opposed to the actual cover, which is probably more homaged than most of your average covers. Yep. Coincidentally, this Julie Schwartz edited comic, "The Man of Two Worlds," is also the title of his autobiography. Yep. The Man of Two Worlds. So yeah, yep. check that out, folks, if you if you haven't read it. It's a fantastic read. But yes, this uh, issue of Strange Adventures 
is basically about a, a chap going about his normal business who suddenly gets shunted halfway into another dimension. And when he goes into this other dimension, he becomes like this red alien kind of creature. But basically, his body's kind of split in half, uh, where one half of him exists in our dimension and the other half exists in the other dimension. There's a lot of mix-up and run around with aliens. He gains superpowers uh, in our own dimension. And uh, eventually, he manages to get the whole thing resolved. And he also manages to repair all the damage that he did when he was his half-dimension man. But yeah, it's a good, fun runaround. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, it would, um, it's a lot of fun. It would make a smashing film. Yes, it would. That kind of wraps up our discussion. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think about all the stuff we've talked about this episode. So you can get in touch with us at the earth 2 podcast at gmail.com. And we may even read your comments out on the show. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at the earth 2 podcast. And, and we're on Twitter at podcast underscore earth 2. So that's the number two. There you go. So thanks for joining us on our journey. And we'll talk to you next time on The The Earth Earth 2 Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime.